great to be with you on uh, this Easter Sunday. Of all the uh, current reforms in the education system, uh, those concerning history are arguably the most contested. Uh, Michael Gove, the Education Secretary, has led on changes to the education system, particularly in the primary sector, uh, which will include, therefore, in future, a greater focus on British history and a learning of key dates within our nation's story. Now, a number of history teachers have responded, um, let's say, cautiously uh, to these developments, whereas other non-specialists have welcomed the move, in principle saying, well, this is how we learned history, so it's good enough for us, why shouldn't this generation do it? They think it's a scandal that people don't know today when the Magna Carta was signed. And so you don't spend the rest of the sermon wondering, it was 12.15, okay, <laughs> just before lunch. Um, but I think the whole debate is in danger of rather missing the point of history. You see, history is not just about what happened when. It is not just about events and their dates. It's about what those events meant then and mean today. The thing really to know about Magna Carta is not that it was signed in 1215, but it represents a, or it represented then a crucial, uh, some say defining moment in the relationship between the monarch and the people. And so the question to ask in history is not just what happened, but what did it mean then and what does it mean now? To use another example, and I hope you'll forgive me if I stray beyond these shores, I understand history has happened elsewhere, the fall of the Berlin Wall, an event I well remember happening. On the 9th of November 1989, the Berlin Wall was breached and people began to flow across it between east and west. But the question to ask is, what did that event represent? It wasn't just about a piece of 12-foot-high concrete it was actually about the collapse of the Soviet bloc, the end of the Cold War. It was an event that heralded a new way of Europe being Europe. And so it's that event of, is that, is that, is that sort of approach of events and meaning that I want us to follow today as we look at the accounts in Luke's Gospel of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why should we look at it in this way? Well, if we've been following our teaching series on Luke, which we started all the way back before Christmas, we'll recall that Luke is writing as a historian. All the way right at the back, the beginning of his gospel in Luke chapter 1, we find that he sets out his purpose to write for his benefactor, Theophilus, who paid for the gospel to be written, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. And as a historian, Luke is concerned with both event and meaning. In his introduction, he records uh, the eyewitnesses whose testimony he has heard, who's told him about the events of Jesus' life and ministry. But he's also keen to explore the meaning of the events themselves, hence his commitment to write an orderly account. That is an account which draws out the uh, significance of the events themselves. And I want to suggest that Luke's concern for event and meaning is to be seen in his account of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. He wants to demonstrate the reality of the resurrection as a historical event, but he also wants to show the meaning of it for the readers today. And let's be clear, what is at stake for Luke as he writes this account of the resurrection? As I mentioned a moment ago, he's writing his gospel for a man called Theophilus, 
a believer, we assume a Roman, who nevertheless is apparently struggling to be really sure in the faith that he's been taught. And so far, Luke has been showing him that Jesus did do all these things and exploring what they meant, his ministry in Galilee, his final journey to Jerusalem. But now Luke is facing his biggest task. He's aiming to demonstrate to Theophilus that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is not a well-meaning rumour of faith, but a fact of history. It really happened, he needs to show, and can be believed. Moreover, he wants to show that the resurrection of Jesus was not a random one-off event, but actually the key that unlocks why Jesus came. Something which has implications far beyond the day itself. And so today, I want us to look carefully at these words of the Apostle, the historian Luke. They're in your Bibles in the seats in front of you, and, and bring them open with me. It's on page 1061. Because this is a reliable historical text we're looking at, written uh, in the mid-80s, of the first century. What we have here is a reliable translation of a text we can be confident was written by the Apostle Luke. So let's look at it together. Page 1060, we're looking at verses 1 to 12. There's a batting order, which is on a blue piece of paper which you were given uh, when you came in. And you can see where we're going this morning and you can have the chance to write notes. And I want to explore how Luke the historian wants to see, first of all, the reality of the resurrection, and secondly, the meaning of the resurrection. And I believe both of those can have impact for us today, this Easter Sunday. So first of all, then, the reality of the resurrection. Now, some people's approach to the resurrection is that it did not happen because miracles are themselves not possible. They make an a priori assumption that Jesus could not rise from the dead because it was a miracle and they are impossible. But that is not an approach that an historian can take. An historian looks at the evidence, weighs the evidence, and then comes to a view on the basis of that evidence. And I want to suggest, as you look at Luke's account of the resurrection, it rings true for at least two reasons. First of all, it rings true because of the surprises Put simply, if Luke were making this up, or someone in the early church was trying to kid him, they wouldn't make up a story like this. The key surprise is the vital role taken by the women. They're there in verse 1. The women took the spices, the women see the body, uh, the women see the empty tomb, the women hear the words of the angels. Now, Women, we need to know, in the first century, were not regarded as reliable witnesses. Their low social status meant that their words did not count for anything in a court of law. You could not call women as witnesses in a court of law. I'm not defending that. I'm simply saying that's how it was in the first century. And yet, here we have Luke recording women as the first people to see the empty tomb. The first people to hear the men we assume to be angels. The first people to report the empty tomb to the disciples. The fact that the disciples don't believe the women, that's not a surprise, by the way. That was just consistent with how the world operated. If Luke or someone else were making this story up, they would have had the disciples, the men, see the risen Jesus and believe. 
Instead, here we have women seeing the empty tomb and believe, and the disciples, with the exception of Peter, scoffing. Why would Luke, trying to reassure a Roman reader hundreds of miles away, why would he, trying to trying to assure that the Roman reader that the resurrection account is true, why would he make up an account like this? Unless this is exactly how it happened. The fact it is surprising is a sign of the account's reliability. Which leads me to the second reason for the reliability of this account, which is the presence of the eyewitnesses. You see, Luke does not record the women's testimony grudgingly. He gives them centre stage because he wants to mark them out as reliable eyewitnesses. You see, we can overlook something in this passage that is really, really important. And that is the names of the women. Look with me at verse 10. Luke tells us very deliberately, it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. There's this outstanding book published a few years ago by a New Testament scholar called Richard Borkham, called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And he convincingly argues, and it's a view that's been widely accepted within New Testament scholarship, that the reason why Luke and the other gospel writers mention people by name is because they want to mark them out as eyewitnesses whose account they are using. A name, therefore, is a code for the early church. This is who told me. An example of this is the story earlier on in Luke's Gospel, the story of Zacchaeus, the chap who climbed the tree in Jericho, the tax collector. There are dozens of tax collectors in Luke's Gospel. But Zacchaeus is mentioned by name as a Luke kind of signposter saying, I've heard his account, either from Zacchaeus itself or from someone Zacchaeus told. And so to the resurrection, Luke who writes this account was not an eyewitness to the resurrection. But by naming Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary the mother of James, he is saying they were, and he is using, their eyewitness testimony. And there's one name among these three that is especially interesting and helps us take this a little bit further. That middle name, Joanna. Now, Joanna is only mentioned by Luke. None of the other gospel writers mention her. In fact, Luke mentions her twice. Once when Jesus was in Galilee... And Joanna is introduced as the wife of Herod's steward, a rich woman, and someone who is told looked after the disciples. And again here, as an eyewitness of the empty tomb and the uh, words of the angels. Now, why does Luke mention her and the other gospel writers don't? I think there is only one credible reason. He mentions her because he's in using her as the evidence for his gospel. He is using her eyewitness testimony as the story, as the basis for his story. And he wants to flag that up to his readers. He's telling them, I heard Joanna tell me that story. Because I think it's more likely than not that Luke actually met Joanna while he was researching his gospel. She would have been an older woman by the late 50s AD when he was travelling around Judea while the apostle Paul was under house arrest in Caesarea. But there is every reason to believe that Luke actually met her. And he mentions her by name as a sign to Theophilus and every reader of his story 
that this story is based on what Joanna saw and the others really witnessed. He's disclosing his sources and therefore adding weight to the argument, this really happened. You see, let's think a little bit more about Luke. Something you may have forgotten. I don't think he found understanding the resurrection easy. Let's not forget his first profession was medicine. And while medicine then wasn't as medicine is now, he still knew as a doctor that people didn't just rise three days after the dead. But as a careful historian who had talked to eyewitnesses of the empty tomb and the angel's words, he is setting out the resurrection as a historical reality. He is commending it to Theophilus and you and me as something that really happened. For we are not going to be able to explain the resurrection any more than Luke could. But our task is not to assess whether the resurrection is explainable, but whether it is credible. In other words, we are not given the evidence in this account to say how the resurrection happened. But we are given the evidence to believe that it did. In the verses that follow this account, we will see the evidence grow as further named people actually see the risen Jesus. But for today, I want to encourage us to believe in the reality of the resurrection. The miracle by which the crucified Jesus Christ was gloriously raised from the dead. And to believe, not despite the evidence, not because we're putting our brain on the hook, but to believe Because of the evidence. When the angels say to the women, he is not here, he is risen, they were telling the truth. This Easter Sunday, we are called to affirm our belief, our faith, that Jesus was raised from the dead. Not as a rumour of faith, but a fact of history. The reality of the resurrection. But Luke does not stop there. He does not want simply to show Theophilus that the resurrection really happened. He wants to show what it meant. And to do that, he records something which, again, no other gospel writer does. The words of the angels to the women at the door of the tomb. Words that I suspect were etched on Joanna's memory that she later told Luke. Look at them with me. They're in verse 6. Of our passage. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, he is risen. And then look, remember how he told you, while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. You see, the message of the angels is this to the women who were standing there open-mouthed and gobsmacked. I mean, Luke puts it rather gently. He says they were wondering about this. But I think we get the picture. The angels are saying, you shouldn't be surprised. Do you remember Jesus said this would happen? They remind the women of the time when back up in Galilee, Jesus has said to his disciples and all who followed him that he would have to go to Jerusalem and die, but that he would be raised again. There's one of these statements recorded in Luke 9.22, but it's hinted at all over the place. So the angels are saying to the women, this was always going to happen. Don't you remember? And Luke tells us that is exactly what the women did. Verse 8, 
Then they remembered his words. It's almost like the jigsaw fell into peace before their eyes. And they turned from being stuck to the spot in fear and confusion to being women who couldn't wait to tell the disciples, who literally kind of ran with the good news. Let's take a moment and think about that. How did the resurrection really help everything fall into place? How is it the missing piece of the jigsaw? How does it explain, give meaning to all that Jesus was about? Well, I want to suggest the resurrection confirms three things about Jesus. I want to explore the first two quite briefly and then the third in a little more detail. First of all, the resurrection confirms the reliability of Jesus. Here is something Jesus said would happen, and it has. It was very unlikely, but it came to pass. That confirms we should take Jesus' words seriously as a man who keeps his promises. Secondly, the resurrection confirms the identity of Jesus. If Jesus' ministry ended at the cross, he could be written off as another failed prophet. But because he rose from the dead, he is clearly something more, much more. Small wonder that Thomas, when he finally saw the risen Lord, fell at his feet and said, My Lord and my God. And third, the resurrection confirms the saving plan of Jesus. And it's this I want to focus on because I think that's at the heart of the angel's message to the women. And in order to do so, I want to take you back to some other words from some angels. Words that we heard in this building just under four months ago. But words which were originally said some 30 years previously to these words by the tomb. Words that were uttered on the very night that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Do you remember the words of the angel choirs to the shepherds in the fields? Today, a saviour has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. A saviour has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. How, we have to ask, was that baby in the manger a saviour? How was that true? Not simply by being born, important though it was that God became flesh. Not by teaching, lasting though Jesus' teaching has been. Not by healing, transforming though it was for the lives who Jesus touched. Not by eating with sinners, powerful sign though that was of God's love. No, the way in which that baby Jesus was a saviour was because he did something that nobody else could do. He went on a path that had been chosen for him by God. That path was not a secret. It was a path he tried to share with his disciples, but as the angels had to remind the women about it, it's clear they didn't grasp it. But Jesus always did. Jesus knew that he had to leave Galilee and head down the 70 miles through the desert to Jerusalem. And he knew that while he would be welcomed in Jerusalem by some as king, he knew that his destination there was not a throne, but a cross. For he knew that he had 
to die at the hands of men, sinful men, so that their sins and indeed the sins of the whole world could be dealt with once and for all. See, Jesus knew what the women were only now beginning to grasp, that the events of the previous Friday were not the failure of God's saving plan. The cross, its horror, its blood, its shame was not an abandonment by God. It was God's saving plan. The death of Jesus on the cross was not the end to a well-meaning prophet, but the necessary death of God's own son for the sins of the world. For the rejection of God and his ways by you and by me. Rejection that could not be ignored or indulged, but had to be solved. There had to be a solution, a saviour, a rescuer. And there was only one way. That's why the angels say he had to go. There was no other choice. The cross was not the failure of God's saving plan. It was God's saving plan. But the saving plan did not end there. One of the most tangible and haunting signs of sin in the world was the reality of death and with it the separation from God and others that it brings. And in paying the price of sin on the cross, Jesus also needed to show that the power of sin had gone from the world. That death itself, that hallmark, handprint, fingerprint of the devil was once more defeated. And that is why he had to rise again. Not for himself, but for others. Jesus needed to show that the old order of things, sin and death, were no longer in charge. Sin had been dealt with on the cross and death defeated in the empty tomb and a new way of living was possible. This is something that's vital for us to grasp. The resurrection was not just for Jesus. The resurrection was something for the whole world. Jesus was making possible in rising from the dead a whole new creation A new way of living and dying and living again. In rising from the dead, Jesus was showing that for people who throw their lot in with him, death need not have the last word. Life beyond the grave is possible, not because we have somehow earned it, but because Jesus defeated death itself. So you see, the resurrection today actually confirms the whole reason Jesus came, his whole saving plan. He came to teach, he came to heal, he came to welcome, yes, but ultimately he came to die and rise again. But the question for us this morning is the question that the women were asked by the angels by the tomb. Will we remember and will we respond? Will we remember And we will respond because we are actually in a more privileged position than the women. They were having to make sense of this on the fly with their emotions clouding their memories. 
But we have the whole Bible pointing to God's saving plan in Jesus Christ. Will we remember and will we respond? Will we see the story of Jesus' death and resurrection as a story for us? That his death and resurrection were for us, sinners in need of a saviour, dying people in need of life. I guess, I guess for me it comes back to our view of history. Do we see the cross and resurrection of Jesus as something that happened back then? A little bit like Magna Carta or the Battle of Waterloo. You know, important in its own way, but not exactly life-changing today. Or do we see history coming into the present The cross and resurrection as historical events, yes, but also very contemporary. Having power in us and through us, even today, almost 2,000 years later. You see, that is what Luke wants Theophilus to see. He wants him to be sure that the resurrection happened, yes. But he also wants him to know that it matters. 30 years then after the event and across the hundreds of miles between Jerusalem and Rome, the meaning of the resurrection was that God's plan had been fulfilled in Jesus, not just in history, but in every person who responds by faith. I remember very clearly when that change happened to me, when the The past came into the present. Aged 18, I'd had years of celebrating Easter, singing in the church choir. Easter was a really big thing. Lots of services, very moving. But it never felt anything other than the past. Just remembering something. Remembering something important, but remembering something that was stuck 2,000 years ago. When I was a student... A number of friends and speakers helped me to see what I've been sharing with you today from Luke's Gospel. That the events of Easter were not random historical events. They were part of God's saving plan. A plan that was for me as much as for anyone else. And since then, Easter's never been the same, you know. The past... The past's become the present. The cross and resurrection events, not just for then and for others, but for now and for me. My sins forgiven. My hope restored. Every Easter I feel my pulse rate quicken as I say, He's risen indeed. Alleluia. Can I ask you, where do you find yourself this Easter day? Are you sceptical about the reality of the resurrection? I want to say, come with me and listen to the eyewitnesses from the empty tomb. The orderly account of the careful Dr. Luke. You won't understand the resurrection today. But you can believe it. If you want to know more, can I put you in the way of a great website called reasonablefaith.org, reasonablefaith.org.
There are fantastic articles there, both scholarly and popular, about the resurrection of Jesus, not as a rumor of faith, but a fact of history. You can believe it. But perhaps you say, well, I believe it happened, but I believe it happened in the past. Can I invite you to see today, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God's saving plan, not for others, but for you. Your sins forgiven. Your hope restored. Come and let Jesus move from the history to the present. Come and ask the Holy Spirit to turn him from being a saviour of history to a saviour of your life. Now, you'll need to move to one side to make that happen. You'll need to recognise that you're not the centre. But as you turn and look at him, you'll receive something more wonderful than you've ever seen before. Perhaps... Perhaps this Easter morning you say, no, Jesus has moved from the history, from the past to the present. His saving plan is your story as it is mine. This Sunday, can I just invite you to look again with awe and wonder at the saving plan of Jesus. That the God of the universe loved you so much that he sent Jesus to live, to die and to rise again to form a community of people who are forgiven, who are saved by grace, and who are called to serve him in the world. See, the angel said, he's not here. He is risen. He is. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah.